Well, stand with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 as we pick up the story near the end of that chapter in verse 35, and I want to work our way all the way through verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 15 of chapter 17, and if you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 925. Let me read our text for us and then pray for our time and we'll get going. So listen now as God does speak to you through his perfect word. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of prison and visited Lydia, and when... They had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so, and many of them therefore believed, with not a few of the Greek women of high standing, as well as the men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul also at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds, and then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer once again. Father, we ask that you would, this day, as we hear your word proclaimed to us, as you speak to us by your Spirit, that you would raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, that we would have earnestness, honesty as we examine our hearts and even examine the text before us, that we might be found in your Son. 
in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Those of you that pay any attention to team sports would know that it's quite typical of a team sport that the flow of the game is dictated by, and frankly, even often decided by, patterns of play. I thought about that not too long ago when a church member in this congregation, knowing my love for soccer, suggested that I watch this behind-the-scenes documentary on a club over in England who's managed by a man who's really the best coach in the world for the last 15 years. And he's well-known for his tactical ability, particularly his precise, rigorous patterns of play on the pitch. And so there was this point in the documentary when his team was standing high atop the table, far ahead of the second-place team, and they were preparing for a game the coming weekend against the defending champions. And as the the behind-the-scenes look goes, he's just parading about the pitch on a training day, urging his team to remember that they hadn't won anything yet. And he's crying out, this Spaniard, in kind of a funny way of speaking the English, he says, you've practiced this pattern a thousand million times. And then he blows his whistle, and he says, let's go, do it again. And the reason I tell you that is because when we come to Acts, if you've been a careful reader and listener of our study so far, uh, you know that there is a pattern to gospel ministry that just seems to happen over and over from chapter to chapter. And it goes like this. Paul and his associates show up in a city. They usually walk straight into a synagogue, preach the gospel to Jews, and there are always some Gentiles they're listening to. And then there's a response to the preaching. Some believe, some don't. And usually it's only a couple of hours later that great hostility arises. There's persecution, there's opposition that forces Paul and his missionary deputies out of the city. They go to the next one, and you just repeat the pattern again. And so as we come to pick up the story of Paul and Silas and Timothy at the back part of Acts chapter 16, and we find them in Philippi, we're going to see that pattern show itself up over and over again in today's passage. It's as though as Paul leaves Philippi, he looks at Silas and Timothy in the face and simply says, let's go and do it again. I'm sure all of you know that so much of of life is rising on these highs and falling on these lows of human experience, highs and lows that can so often be related almost solely to expectations being met or unmet. It's why when a pastor sits down with a couple for premarital counseling, he knows that what he often needs to do at the most basic level is try to unearth those expectations that can serve a relationship or eventually sever a relationship. Uh, Those of you parents know if you're going to drop off a child at college, you do so as they move into this new season of independence, trusting that you've prepared them for what they can expect as they're now out on their own. Or kids, you might have had something similar happen this week as your parents perhaps left you at home with a babysitter, and before they walked out the door, they turned around and looked at you in the eyes and said, now, I expect that you will do this, or I expect that you won't do this. And what the book of Acts is helping us do as Christians in the 21st century, striving to be part of a faithful church in the 21st century, is set our expectations for how gospel ministry ordinarily goes. That's what I want you to see today in our passage. Our theme is the pattern of speaking and receiving the gospel. 
We're going to see it in two simple cities with Thessalonica and Berea, uh, see if we can apply it to our own experience uh, today. But if you're listening carefully, what you're actually going to see along the way in our passage are, I trust, seven simple parts of, of that pattern uh, that belong to us. And so, before we get to speaking and receiving the gospel in Thessalonica, we need to pick up where we left off last week, and we left Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. Because if you weren't with us last week, all you need to know is that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're in Philippi, this leading district in Macedonia, a Roman colony, and there was great power in conversion that came through their ministry rapidly. They come into the city. They don't find a synagogue. That's how dark it was in Philippi. They go outside of the city. They find this women's prayer group. Paul speaks the gospel. A wealthy woman named Lydia is converted. Uh, she's baptized. She and her household, she receives the apostles in, cut to the next scene. Paul goes and ministers in the city, and this slave girl who has the spirit of a python in her, she's demon-possessed, follows them around, uh, crying out constantly day after day that these men follow the Son of the Most High God and are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And if you remember from last week, at some point after a few days of this, Paul gets really annoyed by what's going on. He's disturbed. So he cries out, exercises the demon from her. And her masters, realizing that the demon had gone out from her and their ability to make profit from her had gone out from them, uh, they decide it's time to stir up trouble for these guys in Philippi. If you glance back to chapter 16 and what we're told in that passage, particularly verse 20, uh, they get the citizens and magistrates all riled up and they say, these men are Jews, they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The magistrates decide, okay, let's beat Paul and Silas with rods. Uh, beat them probably into a bloody pulp. Let's throw them into prison. Chain them there to a wall and we'll figure out what to do with them. Uh, that night, sometime around midnight, they're, they're singing. They're praying, Paul and Silas. Uh, an earthquake comes from the Lord. The prison cells are opened up. The shackles are broken loose. The jailer's are about ready to kill himself because he believes that prisoners have escaped. And Paul says, don't do it. We're all right here. And then he asks Paul and Silas that most eternally significant question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And kids, I hope you remember his answer. It's one that's good to even place upon your very heart this day with your scripture memory. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. So he believes. He goes home. Everyone's rejoicing. He and his household are baptized. That's where we left off. Pick up the story today on the next morning. As I read the text, you noticed in verse 35, the police basically tell the jailer, hey, tell Paul and Silas it's time to depart the city in peace. And Paul says, absolutely not. He stages, notice verse 37, what might be the first sit-in protest of the early church. He says, they have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. A Roman citizen should not have been punished the way they were the previous day. And Paul says, we're Roman citizens. Now, you want to ask the question, well, why the day before... Before the beatings came and the imprisonment followed, didn't they say, we're Roman citizens, don't touch us? Well, 
only answers we could give would all be speculative because we really don't know. But I think at least at one level, what's happened here is if you glance back at verse 20 and 21, when they caused this riot in Philippi that resulted in the beatings and the imprisonment, what was underlying that is that these Jews are upsetting the Roman reality. There was this kind of ethnic difficulty going on and frankly, ethnic hostility that belonged there. And yet Paul comes along and says this Christian movement, it's going to blow up paradigms within your first century world's mind thinking that you can slot the Jews here and the Romans here. Oh no, the Christian movement that belongs to Jesus Christ as his kingdom advances in the world, what is it doing? But grabbing people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Not just Jews, not just Greeks, not just Gentiles, but Roman citizens as well are now coming into the faith. And so they publicly apologize. They say, but please, it's time to leave Philippi. And off they go, you'll notice, to Thessalonica. And that's where we pick up the story, really, in our text today, verse 1 of chapter 17. Speaking and receiving the gospel in Thessalonica. It would have been a journey from Philippi to Thessalonica that was going some, what, 95 miles or so southwest. It would be like today if you just walked out the door and just headed to Weatherford, Texas. And when you got there, that'd be about the same length of time as it would have taken these brothers to get from Philippi to Thessalonica. And when they arrive, they do what the pattern of their gospel ministry says they always do. Notice verse 2 and 3. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. From the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. So you see, the first part of their pattern in ministry is the centrality of speaking the gospel. They go into the city and within a few steps, they find the synagogue and within a few moments, they're preaching the gospel upon their city's entrance or entrance to the city. A couple of years ago, a, a friend of mine recommended that I look into the works by an old Scottish preacher named James Stewart. Uh, for a period of time, he was the professor of New Testament at Edinburgh College. He also, for a period of time, was chaplain to Queen Elizabeth, uh, recently uh, departed. And in one of his works, he talks about stumbling across this volume that was titled, The Last Sermons I Would Ever Preach. And when thinking about that title and the sermons it contained, he said that, you know, proper preachers realize every time they preach, it could be the last sermon that they ever preach. And in this particular work, he went on to say, therefore, we have no right in our preaching to waste time on side issues and irrelevances. In other words, if we are not determined that in every sermon Christ should be preached, well, it would be better for us that we resign our commission forthwith and seek some other vocation. And that's true. If you're going to preach something other than Jesus Christ, you might as well depart the pulpit and go do something else. The pulpit is here for preaching Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul would surely agree with that. Uh, there's no possibility that anyone could ever reason, Paul, you need to resign your ministry because you just forgot the matters of first importance. You see, again, within a few steps, within a few open doors, he's immediately preaching uh, Jesus Christ. This is the centrality of preaching the gospel. And I want you to see, even from verse 2 and 3, there's a rationality to the gospel. You notice the verbs that Luke uses in verse 2 and 3, that he reasoned with them, explaining 
and proving. It's a language that reminds us that the gospel isn't this just man-made myth, this kind of human tradition that people foolishly follow. This is something that's rooted in history. This is something that's written down as fact in a spirit-inspired book. This is something that you can prove with reasonable evidence. This is a gospel that goes to the mind, is what Paul is saying. And I do hope, you know, kids, I hope you know that when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, what you're hearing is an announcement that, that genuinely should affect your heart to its very emotional and affectional center. Like it goes down to the depths of who you are. But it never does that by bypassing the mind. That's what Paul is saying here when he's in the synagogue. He says, let me prove to you the rationality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to show that the gospel itself is really just the revelation of Jesus Christ. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to us. Notice again what he says at the end of verse 3. It's necessary that the Christ, the anointed one, would suffer and rise from the dead. And Paul says, I say to you, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one for whom you are searching, the one for whom you are looking, the one that I proclaim to you this day, he is the Christ. This is the centrality of speaking the gospel. It's a gospel that's rational, it's understandable, it's, it's reasonable, but it's also a revelation of what God has done for sinners like you and me and Jesus Christ. Hey, that long-expected Messiah that you're so desperately longing to see, I know his name, Paul says, and his name is Jesus Christ. And I wonder what you've done with that news. Many of you, of course, in here today have heard it before this morning. Have you obeyed the gospel summons, which is turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ, or maybe you've heard that truth, that reasonable revelation, and you're just indifferent to it. It maybe affects you for a few seconds on a Sunday, but then it escapes your mind as soon as you leave the building, and maybe next Sunday you'll show up and think about it again. Well, we know from Acts, don't we, that whenever the gospel is preached, a response ensues. Gospel always generates a divide, doesn't it? You see what we're told in verse 4 and 5, and some of those were persuaded, that being some of the Jews there in the synagogue. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous. Students, why do you think that the Jews would have been jealous at the apostolic ministry of Paul and his friends? I mean, they're just preaching the truth contained there in the Old Testament Scriptures. Why would they be so jealous? Hard to know, but it seems quite likely is that they see people leaving their midst to go, of course, assemble with other Christians. They've lost the potential of evangelizing these proselytes that would have been there, Gentile proselytes there in the synagogue. It's almost as though they're frustrated by the fact that these apostles are showing up, preaching Jesus Christ, and stealing the sheep. There's not just something that happens in the centrality of the gospel being spoken, but oftentimes jealousy comes when receiving the gospel. How many of you know that self-righteous religious people can be some of the most jealous people around? I've seen this so often, not just in the Christian ministry, but in Christian churches where self-righteous religious professors are jealous that another church is finding blessing. Self-righteous religious pastors, jealous that another pastor is receiving blessing. 
Uh, there's not graciousness in receiving the gospel here. It's just simply jealousy. And they're jealous unto the ends of, of violence. You notice that as the text continues. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. There's centrality in speaking the gospel. There's jealousy in receiving the gospel. And now, what's the pattern? Hostility towards the gospel. Earlier this week, I was working on something that's long past due, and it was related to persevering in the gospel ministry. And I thought about the story earlier this week of a man named Charles Simeon. He was a pastor in 19th century England for 54 years at Trinity Church in, in Cambridge. And he was a man that, that knew unusual hostility in his life. Uh, he was appointed at Trinity Church against the wishes of his congregation. And so what he decided to do is he's going to preach in the morning service, and he wanted to preach in the evening service as the normal pattern of the time would dictate. But the congregation said, no, you're not going to preach in the evening service. We're going to appoint the guy we really wanted to take your job, and he's going to preach in the evening service. So Simeon decided, well, I'll just start my own evening service. And the deacons locked the doors so he couldn't get in. And then he ended up getting an injunction which said, well, they got to open the doors. So the deacons proceeded to lock all the pews so no one could sit down in the church. And all Simeon could do was put chairs in the aisles, and there was just a tiny fraction of people that could sit and listen to the gospel proclaimed soundly and sincerely. And this happened for years and years and years. He's a man of what it means to persevere in the ministry because if you looked into his life, you would often think, how is it that you lasted so long? in the face of hostility, and actually late in his life, I think it was around the time of his 49th anniversary that someone asked him, Simeon, how did you last so long in the ministry in the face of all of this hardship? And he said, quote, Brother, we must not mind a little suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here with these apostles in their pattern of speaking and receiving the gospel Surely it's a sentiment that Paul would have said yes and amen to. We must not matter just a little suffering for Jesus Christ. Every city into which they went, it seems like suffering would follow. You see here, they couldn't find the apostles. They couldn't find the missionaries. So verse 6 tells us they dragged Jason out of his house. This man who was likely uh, a recent convert to Christianity, likely the one that was opening his home to Paul and his friends and providing hospitality towards them. And you'll see at the end of the text here in Thessalonica, verse 9, they took this bond money from Jason and his friends as security. Okay, we're, we're basically going to let the missionaries off the hook. Just give us the money. We'll let you off the hook too, Jason, and just tell them they need to get out of here. So off they go from Thessalonica. And off they go to Berea. You'll notice verse 10 through 15. And they go about this pattern of speaking and receiving the gospel in Berea. You notice verse 10. Immediately, Paul sent Paul, I'm sorry, they sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, what did they do, kids? They went right into the Jewish synagogue. So I want you to see not just centrality in speaking the gospel, but I want you to see here even consistency in speaking the gospel. What themes? truths most consistently come out of your heart and overflow then from your lips. Uh, you know, you want to examine, don't you, your, your daily life, your ordinary weekly rhythms, and, and think, well, uh, surely what comes maybe most consistently out of my mouth is something about sports, what's going on in school, 
some sort of entertainment reality, some sort of relationship or politics and world matters and current events, and all that's fine. And oftentimes even necessary, isn't it? But how consistent is your own life in speaking the truth of the gospel? Amidst all that which you consistently talk about, is there this consistent theme of singing and speaking and saying the glory of Jesus Christ as has been revealed in the gospel? And there's this clear contrast in our passage in the response to their consistency in speaking the gospel, whereby there was jealousy in Thessalonica, you'll notice verse 11, there's nobility in Berea. Verse 11 tells us, well, these Jews in this synagogue, well, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. I grew up in a church, and I'm sure many of you did too, that you not infrequently would hear this phrase bandied about or bandied about. Be a Berean is what they would say. And it's, of course, taken from this text, and it usually meant something like, in your own quiet time, evaluate the truth of God's Word. Something like that. And that's a good thing you should do. But what you want to know is that's not what this passage is talking about. Whereas that kind of be a Berean phrase was more of an individual pursuit. Here it's a communal reality. You have all of these people, noble, open-minded in their integrity. Well, they're listening carefully to what Paul is saying, not just listening carefully. They're examining even the scriptures to understand if what's being proclaimed is actually there in the text. That's why even every time we tend to start a service or sermon here at Redeemer, I say something like, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. I tell preaching students, you want to grow a congregation that's nothing more than holy bobbleheads. What I mean by that is, when you say, look at verse 11, what do you see? People looking at verse 11. Because they need to know that what you say about verse 11 is actually what? In verse 11. There's this nobility, isn't there, in receiving the gospel, this earnestness, this eagerness to examine the scriptures to see if it were so, and their earnest examination resulted in salvation. Look at verse 12. For many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, but the hostility, right? The pattern continues. Hostility comes. You see these jealous Jews that were there in Thessalonica. Uh, They heard that Paul was doing the same thing over in Berea. So they said, well, let's come up and stir up opposition to him down in Berea and get him kicked out of there too. And that's pretty much what happens. You'll see verse 13 continues. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Evidently, they had created another rabble full of rousers along the way. And so Paul now leaves a city, Berea, to go to another city, you'll see at the end of the passage, he's now going to be found in Athens. Or Lord willing, we pick up the story next week and see what that pattern of gospel ministry looks like. But, but here's what the text is telling us, isn't it? There's this pattern to speaking and receiving the gospel, which means a centrality, which means a consistency in speaking the gospel. Such centrality and consistency leads to responses that are often divided, some with jealousy, some with nobility, receiving the gospel. Oftentimes, Within quick compass, hostility growing towards the gospel itself, and God uses that hostility to what? Propel the gospel forth to the ends of the earth, such as the pattern of ministry before us today. I remember years ago, a, a beloved sister, an older sister in the congregation where I was serving at the time, put a book in my hands, and 
Uh, pastors generally like when people put a book in your hands. Sometimes you get bad books, and so you have to tell the person, well, this isn't a very good book. What do you want me to do with this book? But uh, this book was a good book. It was a, a dear sister in our church who had grown up in what was previously known as the Belgian Congo. And she asked me one week, can I bring you a biography next week? You know, I know you like to read biographies, and I do. Uh, I grew up, I've told you before, reading missionary biographies in particular. And she said, I want to give you my favorite missionary biography. So she came the next week and put this book in my hand. And it was the biography of a man named C.T. Studd, who in the early 20th century was one of the first people to take the gospel in the years after World War I to what was formerly called the Belgian Congo. And if you ever read a biography of C.T. Studd, you would figure out quite quickly that uh, the, the man was quite vigorous in his gospel labor, but was actually quite humorous too, because one time near the end of his life, uh, someone asked him, because they looked out on all of the blessing the Lord had brought through his ministry there in Africa, they, they asked him, well, what if C.T. dies? You know, what's going to happen to all of this when you die? And he said this, we will all shout, Hallelujah. The world will have lost its biggest fool. And with one less fool to handicap him, God will do greater wonders still. <laughs> and it was in that context that he began to speak more and uttered what is probably the only line that anybody would ever remember that C.T. Studd uttered. He said, some people desire to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. He said, I want to run a rescue station within a yard of hell. There was this urgency that belonged to his life for Jesus Christ. And as we begin to close, I want you to see first of two final truths and applications for us in this text, one of which is I want you to see the urgency, the urgency for Jesus Christ. You have Paul and his associates, don't you, going from city to city, often bloodied, often beaten, often broken, often bruised, but they don't show up in the city licking their wounds. They don't show up in the city to convalesce and get their energy back. They show up in the city, and it seems as though without finding a bed or place to eat, they're just going to go right to the place where they can do what? Preach the good news and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know how the urgency of these men needs to work itself into your heart. But, but I trust that the Spirit is sovereign in His wisdom to know some of you need to grow in urgency, zealousness, earnestness and diligence for Jesus Christ. How might these men and their urgency with this gospel challenge you and, and convict you, perhaps even, even comfort you at one level? So see the urgency for Jesus Christ. And I want you to see, lastly, this text calls us to yield to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Glance back to what we're told in Thessalonica in verse 6 and 7 was going on with Jason and the shouting crowds. They say in verse 6 into verse 7, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, students, children, it's a wonderful thing, maybe tonight. Lord, with humility and grace, I ask that you turn me into someone that turns the world upside down for Jesus Christ. That's a good prayer that you can just add to your stock daily prayer list. But they've turned the world upside down by doing what? You see how the text continues. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. An unbelieving world often stumbles upon the truth and don't even realize what they've stumbled upon, do they? They're proclaiming another king, 
and his name is Jesus. What they meant as a charge of sedition is what? The gospel of salvation. That there is another king. There is the king of kings before whom every ruler, every authority, every leader, every government must bow. They must kiss the sun, Psalm 2 says, unless they perish in the way. But the point for you today, as the Spirit applied the truth of Jesus Christ to your heart, such so that sin and self no longer rules, but the King, whose name is Jesus, now sits enthroned with faith and trust and looking eyes of love. Because these are the desires of those who love Jesus Christ, the dominant desires, aren't they? Urgency for Jesus Christ that comes from an allegiance to his supremacy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us in the midst of our weakness and our failings the ways in which we haven't been earnest, the ways in which we haven't been urgent, the ways in which we have missed your truth, the ways in which we have been comfortable with sin, to grow us out of those things as you would lift our eyes to Jesus Christ and find life in his name. Uh, We thank you that he has come and taken the punishment and penalty that our sins deserve. Uh, Grow us in that love and mercy this day. Uh, Grow us and send us forth as your ambassadors, we ask in his precious name. Amen. Well, as we